Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be finishing chapter 9 this morning, page 845 in a blue pew Bible if you don't have one. Uh, a big thank you to Pastor Juan from, who came from, uh, from Patterson, left his church for a week to come and preach uh, to us, served us well uh, last week in preaching out of Mark Nine, and we had uh, a great week up at Camp Spofford in New Hampshire, a place we go every year with, uh, with my family, and uh, it, w- it was a great week to just relax and disconnect, and uh, it was great even also including a uh, fractured nose in my, uh, that I received during a basketball game, so first time ever, all my time playing basketball, first time I fractured my nose, and uh, motto in our family, basketball's always worth it, all right? There's no, there's no regrets. Um, and I uh, have gone through the stages of grief, and I'm okay with it, of, uh, <laughs> that I no longer have an asymmetrical nose for the rest of my life, and uh, I don't know if Rochelle is okay with it, but I'm, I'm uh, okay with it. So, uh, but one of the real benefits of, of getting away to Camp Spofford for us every year is it's this kind of uh, disconnect from our digitally saturated world. Uh, so all last week, I didn't watch a second of television. I did not look at a computer once. Uh, I checked maybe my phone once a day for messages and emails to see if there was anything pressing, but it was just this real removal from it that was so refreshing. And then, I mean, you guys know me. I'm all in on technology, love all of it, all the aspects of it, all the benefits of it. But when you get away from it, you realize you need that once in a while. And then so kind of get away from it for a week, and now we're kind of totally back in. And as I think about our digitally saturated world, we start getting words that were not really words 10 years ago that had any meaning that today everyone knows, like a viral video. If you heard that 15 years ago, you'd be like, a what, a viral video? Like, that's a good thing? Like, wh- wh- what's that even mean? And, and I wonder, what's your viral video of choice? What's the video, if you come across it in social media, you come across it on the internet, that you know no matter how busy you are, you're going to take the time to watch it because this is like one of your videos, ones that you love, all right? I hope it doesn't involve cats, all right? That's a problem. But, but what is your viral video of choice? Um, one of mine, I probably have a lot, but one of mine is when a person, especially a child or a teen, um, who is colorblind from birth. Have you seen these videos where they get these special glasses For the first time, they look like sunglasses, and they put them on, and for the first time in their lives, they are now able to see color. And it's incredible because when you think about it, you can't really describe color to somebody who doesn't know what color is. Have you ever tried to do that? Like, like you you just can't describe it. Red is just red. You can't describe red other than saying it's red. Like, I didn't even realize this until my son kind of started getting to an age where he started asking a lot of questions. I'd be like, well, that's blue. And he'd be like, well, what's blue? And I'd go to answer it. I'd be like, it's It's blue. Right? It's, it's not purple. It's blue. And I, I just don't know how else to explain it. And so uh, responses of these people, and, and there's one I know in my mind, the kid was probably maybe 12 years old, and, and you know, it, it wasn't a result that you thought you would see when you put the glasses on. It wasn't like, oh, this is kind of cool, and he wasn't uh, like freaking out, excited. He just started bawling. Like, it was unbelievably emotional for him. He had never seen color his entire life, and now he sees it. And I'll tell you why that's fascinating to me. is because nothing in the world around him has changed. But the way he saw the world will never be the same. After putting those glasses on, it's been completely transformed. 
And I think that provides this really neat picture of what it is to believe in Jesus Christ and follow him. Once, once you believe, nothing really around you changes. You probably have the same job and the same family and the same situation and the same circumstances. But the way you see the world now will never be the same. It's completely transformed. The lenses through which you see the world never be the same, right? The, the Bible might give you language like the veil has been lifted, and, and now you see things for how they really are and how they've been designed by God. And so I, I share that, I open with that, because um, that's going to kind of be our theme over the next several weeks. I don't know if, obviously we're going verse by verse through Mark, so if you've been reading ahead, you know what's coming. We have some, we have some hot rod topics coming up. Jesus, in line with his theme that we've seen now for recent weeks, um, ever since Mark 8, of kind of showing his disciples of what it means to really follow him, now he kind of goes through this kind of gauntlet of topics. Things we're going to see today, amongst other things, um, sin and hell. And then marriage and divorce next week. And then wealth and greed the week after that. Like a gauntlet of modern day lightning rod topics, emotions run high, op opinions go deep, and yet, like, they're not new, right? Like, Mark was written 2,000 years ago. And here he goes, right in a row, addressing these things. They were hot rod topics in the first century, they're still hot rod topics in the 21st century, and yet, here it is. And so, like, that's one of the advantages that I've said over and over again. I like preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible because you can't avoid them. I guarantee you, left to my own devices, I probably wouldn't come around hell too often if I had to choose a topic every week. If I just sat in my study and said, hmm, what do I want to give the people? Probably never touch in this passage. But here we are, can't avoid it, going verse by verse. And so it's time for us to lean in, to put on the lenses through which uh, the Word of God says we should see the world around us and not the way culture tells us we should see the world around us and know that our view should be transformed. And when we put, see things through this lens, we need to faithfully follow it. And so we're covering Mark 9, starting in verse 38, going to the end this morning. And this passage is going to break into two parts as Jesus teaches his disciples. Promises and, and warnings. Promises and warnings. We're going to see two of each. And, and they're both going to convey, be used by Jesus to convey a singular, crucial point. So let's start with the promises. We'll go verses 38 to 41. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. All right, two promises Jesus gives here. First, the one who proclaims Christ will be for Christ. The one who proclaims Christ will be for Christ. So let's place this conversation in context, right? Because we're diving right into the middle of a discussion that Juan started last week. Um, last week, the disciples confessed to Jesus that they were arguing amongst themselves who was the greatest. It's 
12 of them along the road were having this argument as who is the greatest among them, right? A common consequence of the fallen sinful nature that we live in is our obsession with measuring ourselves against those around us and wanting to be the best. And if not best, isn't this true? If not best, we at least want to just be a little bit better than those that are right next to us. We are always comparing, always measuring, always just wanting to be a little bit better. And Jesus flips the script on them. He said last week, if anyone wants to be first, which they all apparently do, he must be last. He must be the first servant. And he he grabbed a child who was nearby as an illustration. As they're having this discussion, just pulls this child in. And he says, one who receives, one who serves even a child, will receive the one who has sent me. Okay, so then we get to verse 38, where then John speaks up. And they're still in the middle of this discussion. John's looking to probably just change the subject. He wants to get back in the good graces of Jesus because they've just been rebuked. and They've just kind of been uh, yelled at. And he was reminded of something that happened in the past. So John kind of brings this up, again, trying to get back in the good graces of Jesus. And he says, hey, teacher, you know, we saw someone who was casting out demons in your name. But don't worry. We did all we could to stop him because he's not one of us. He's not one of us. He's not in our crew. He's not with us following you in person. He's not in our inner circle, so we told him to stop. Again, he's probably saying this thinking Jesus will appreciate this. Jesus will affirm him in this. But Jesus' answer is not what he expected. He said, no, 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 no. Don't stop him. Anyone who's driving out evil, anyone who's driving out demons can only do so by the power of God, right? A house divided cannot stand. Why would evil ever drive out evil? So the fact that he is doing this is actually evidence that he's also my follower. You should rejoice in his success, for the one who is not against us is for us. If he is proclaiming Christ and he's pushing back the darkness, we're on the same team here, aren't we? We're aiming for the same things. And so in this promise, he, he's exposing a flaw in his disciples' thinking. The disciples were looking down on this man. Why? Simply because he wasn't one of them. Not exactly like them. They, they thought they had exclusive rights over proclaiming Christ and displaying his power. But Jesus is saying, fellas, The kingdom is far more extensive than you realize. He's for us. We ought to be for him. Don't stop him. You should be rejoicing in the work that he's doing. Exposes this really ugly manifestation of pride. Juan talked about pride yesterday. And here, John's kind of exposing how some of the most ugly sins, all sin is ugly, we'll get to that in a bit, but some of the most ugly sins that are both systemic and personal flow from this point of pride, of looking down on others simply because they're not like us, and they're not in our crew. So you look at that, this is not just a first century problem. I mean, you could, you could use any number of applications here, but let's just talk about racism. Racism, both personal and systemic, 
The racism that led to chattel slavery in America, the racism that led to Jim Crow, the racism that still pops its head up in 2018 in various ways around the country, it is rooted in a mistreatment of fellow image bearers simply because blacks are not white. And it's a sin from the pit of hell. Sin that our country, I don't think, still hasn't removed itself from or truly dealt with, but just kind of trying to move on. But staying in context here, while this attitude is at the core of all kinds of sin, personal and systemic, specifically, Jesus is addressing the way followers of Christ ought to view other believers. He says, rather seeing each other as enemies, or rather than seeing each other as different, believers from different contexts should rejoice in the fruit that they're seeing in others, even when, and especially when, their success is far greater than yours. Do you remember two weeks ago, the passage, the disciples, what were they failing to do? Drive out a demon. They were trying to do it in their own power, and they couldn't do it. And, and now here's a guy who's not even one of them. He's not even following them like he, like, like, they're not even following Jesus like they are. They're not in their crew, and he's driving out demons. Like, that had to hurt their ego, right? He's experiencing more success, and they're the ones with Jesus. Like, what's up with that? But Jesus says, brothers, rejoice. He's promising them that the power of God is moving all over the place. Rejoice where you see it. Don't stop it. Don't resent it. Simple implication for us today to be reminded of for me to be reminded of, there is no one church, there's no one denomination that has an exclusive right to proclaim Jesus Christ. I received a lot of advice in my time in ministry, my short time in ministry, um, but one that really sticks out to me is right when I started, it was a pastor who, who just said to me lovingly, he said, you know what a real mark of maturity in a pastor is? is whether he can be truly joyful for other churches whose ministry is more fruitful than his. And I, and I think about that in this context, I think that can apply to all Christians. And so a question that I have, is it true of you that you are rejoicing for other believers who are being blessed even if you're currently not seeing that same blessing? This is what it means to follow Christ and see the world through his lens. To rejoice in the fruit of God's kingdom wherever it's happening, even and especially when it's happening for others and maybe not you in this season. So let it be true of us to cling to this promise for the one who is not against us is for us and we should be for them. Second promise. The one who serves Christ will be rewarded by Christ. The one who serves Christ will be rewarded by Christ. So Jesus takes a little turn here, says something a little curious. He says, he says truly, guys, uh, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to me will by no means lose his reward. So he kind of turns the table on them. He says, you should be for them because, listen, if anyone serves you because of your affiliation with me, 
they will secure their reward. And, and I think what Jesus is doing here is he's preparing them for what life is going to be like after he is gone. After his death and resurrection, and they will be commissioned to make disciples and to spread his name. And they will take them all across the Roman Empire, and they will be bottom of the barrel in the Roman Empire. A Roman Empire that's trying to root out this new thing called the way of following Jesus. Tried to cut off their leader at the top so that everything else would scatter. And so he's saying, listen, the only reason somebody will help you is if they too are of me. One who serves Christ's people in need will reflect a desire to serve Jesus Christ himself. This kind of sentiment and theme is all throughout the Gospels. I think it's most explicitly seen in Matthew 25, if you know your Bibles well. That's a, that's a famous passage, right, where Jesus tells his disciples, as you do to the least of these, you did it for me. His disciples were like, well, I don't know really what that means. But he's talking about this desire to serve those who have little to nothing, the desire to serve those who society deems as bottom of the barrel, that will reflect a heart of Christ. And they will secure their reward. He's not talking about salvation by works. He's not saying you'll only be saved if you do this. He said, if you are saved, if you are truly of me, this will be a result. And this will be some of the evidence this will be the evidence of a new heart and eternal life of serving the least of these. And it's a promise he's giving his disciples. And so again, 2,000 years later, like we got some modern application for us here. A reflection of a real faith that follows. That's what we're seeing, right? Real, after week after week. A real faith that follows will be made evident in us by how willing we're able to help those who, quote, can't help you back. How often do you serve and help those who can give you nothing in return? They can't offer you anything in return. They can't match what you're doing for them at all. And yet, that's not a problem because you're serving them simply out of the outflow of the blessings you have in Jesus Christ. Especially for fellow believers. The way we look about and talk about serving others here at Grace Church, we, we really categorize it in three ways. We say time, treasure, and talent. Kind of three ways that you, I mean, encourage you even to kind of write it down and, and, and evaluate your life. Like, how am I deploying my time and my treasure and my talent to bless and serve others? Our seasons of compassion, right now we're in the middle of Project Backpack, right? Just uh, applying and supplying backpacks for children in Patterson, fully loaded backpacks that they otherwise would not have starting next month for 30 bucks. That's nothing for us that we can just deploy that funds to really give these kids the tools they need to thrive in school. Like that's one application, but it's not just giving money. I think sometimes we boil it down too much to just what can we give? What about time and talent? A lot of applications, obviously. Let, let me just share one way. Um, thinking about how we are rolling out the Gospel Project curriculum this morning. As pastor of this church, one thing I pray for, one thing I would yearn for, is that if there was one ministry that was never lacking for volunteers here at Grace Church, it would be the children's ministry. Nursery and kids' worship doesn't cost you a dime 
but it's time and it's talent, which sometimes could be more costly for us, giving our time to serve children in our church. And, um, and, and the way to get it is not to say, hey, it's easy, anyone can do it. It's not easy. If you've done it, you know it's not easy. It's not a cakewalk. Nursery can be chaotic. All right? There's a reason we close these doors right, when that service starts. And, and kids worship, having to teach down there and do the preparation and do all the work and getting here early, like, that is difficult. And on top of that, like you've worked hard all week. And now it's hard to kind of get up Sunday morning and gear up to go work again with little kids. Like the optics of that seem off to us. Like that, that, that wouldn't be worth it. Why would I sign up for that? And listen, like we're in Bergen County, right in the affluent area. Many of you hold lofty positions throughout the week. And you are important. And you're looked up to, and you're, you're a professional. And so now to sign up to go sit on the floor with a bunch of two-year-olds is not something that you think has any benefit. Or, or, or to do preparation in your own time late at night to go how to teach the gospel to kids. Like, there, there seems like no reward there. But I'm telling you, church, there is. Teaching the kids the good news of the gospel and playing with them down the hall week in and week out adorns the gospel. And it's glorifying to God. And it reflects a heart that is willing to go low so Christ may be lifted high. Two promises in following Jesus. One who proclaims Christ is for Christ. And one who serves Christ will be rewarded by Christ. And with that, Jesus is totally going to shift the discussion from promises to warnings. So let's go, Mark 9. We'll read 42 to 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You might think, well, that was a strange turn in the conversation. Why did Jesus go from promises to warnings so fast? And, and yet, we see this biblically all across the scripture, and I think we know from experience in our own lives that both promises and warnings are needed and effective to get a point across. So let me give you a meaningless example to show this that's far less weighty than the one in the Bible that just played out in our house last night around 6 p.m., all right? If I want Caden to finish his dinner, or was it Brinley last night? I think it was Brinley last night, all right? There's two ways we can provide incentive to them, a promise or a warning. Brinley, if you finish your dinner, you will get a dessert that mom has made for you that's sitting in the other room. Or, that's one way, 
To get the same point across, I could say, Brinley, if you do not finish your dinner, you get no dessert tonight. One's a promise, one's a warning, and they have the same aim. Both aiming to the same end. Sometimes a promise is needed and effective, and other times a warning is needed and effective. And that's what we see all throughout the scripture. Both are needed and used to exhort people to believe and follow Jesus. Both are a means of grace. Church, some days you're going to need a promise from God's word. And other days you're going to need a warning. And they both can be a gift to you in following Christ. So we saw two promises. Now Jesus gives two warnings. First, the weight of sin is death. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So it's a transition verse, right? The opposite of doing good to a believer in verse 41 is now causing them to sin in verse 42. And, and little ones could refer to a child. Maybe he still has a child in his hand in this discussion. I think more probable he's referring to anybody who would follow him, a little one in faith who is following him. But this is a drastic and vivid word picture that Jesus provides to get across the danger and the weight of sin. This was an actual practice in the Roman Empire, a Gentile form of execution. You would be weighed down and thrown into the Mediterranean Sea. And Jesus says that would be better than causing a believer to stumble in sin. That's a big statement. I think the sin that Jesus is referring to in line with this discussion with John just before it is still pride of being consumed with being better than others, of seeing ourselves higher than we ought to, that sin that's beneath all other sin. Uh, last week, Juan Garcia quoted a part of C.S. Lewis's quote. I actually want to share the entire quote with you uh, that he shared a portion of talking about pride. I'll have it on the screen. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the sin that leads to all other sin. And its weight is so burdensome, it's so dangerous, that it would be better to be weighed down and thrown into the sea. It's the first warning. Jesus doesn't stop there. In fact, he ratchets it up from there in the second warning. The pathway of sin leads to hell. I'm not sure there's any doctrine that has been attacked more in our postmodern Western culture than the doctrine of hell. It is said and thought that the belief in hell represents all that is wrong with Christianity. And this isn't even a growing sentiment outside the church. Even those inside the church, influential voices in our day, are saying, listen, it ruins our witness to talk about hell. 
It should be avoided at all costs. Don't say it. Don't preach it. Don't highlight it. Don't even hint about it. And, and I get it. Like the optics and the initial even hearing it, it just kind of can make you squirm. I mean, maybe this is a day you brought somebody to church and you're like, really, pastor? Like this is what you're going to do on day one. It's going to make you look judgmental. It's going to make you look like a bitter person who is unloving and irrelevant in this culture if you don't cut it out. And do I agree that it's possible for a Christian to use hell and threaten hell as if it's a weapon in order to attack others with in a way that is unloving? Absolutely. I think it happens all the time. But is the right response to just neglect it altogether? To neglect hell is to neglect the teachings of Jesus. Did you know that Jesus talks more about hell in the Bible than any other author combined? You know, there's a common th thought about the Bible, and it's really just ignorant, but it's very widespread, I think, in our culture, that the God of the Old Testament, that's just an angry God. That's just an angry, unloving, kind of judgmental God. He's not very nice. He's kind of cold. But, but the God of the New Testament, that's the God we like. The God of the New Testament, it's, it's about love and, and grace and, and forgiveness. And it's, it's wrong. And it just shows an ignorance of the Bible. Because God is the same. And he is unchangeable. The only being in the universe that's unchangeable. Old Testament, New Testament, past, present, future. He is creator, savior, redeemer, sustainer, judge. From Genesis to Revelation. Our kids are going to see it and we need to see it too. And it's awesome. And in the New Testament, Jesus is the face of God. And we, we, we've seen it all throughout Mark to this point. He's ferocious and he is tender. He is loving towards what is good, and he is wrathful towards what is evil. And to Jesus, hell was not just a threat to lord over people. Hell was not just this manipulative tool that he did to get people to do what they want. Like, I think a lot of times people see churches or pastors that talk about it or trying to manipulate. Hell, to Jesus, is a reality to warn people of. It deepens the reality of sin. And the consequence of living for yourself as opposed to denying yourself. Which is what started this whole discipleship discourse to begin with in Matthew 8. He said, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. The opposite of that is living for yourself. And the result of that is hell. And so he makes three kind of overstatements, right? Three hyperboles to get this point across. If, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than, crippled than to be thrown to hell. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for to enter life lame than to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Better to go into life with limited eyesight than it is to be thrown into hell. Those are three vivid overstatements, right? The, the words hyperbole. We know Jesus is not actually wanting his disciples to mutilate themselves because the Bible clearly forbids that. And the matter of sin is not a physical matter. It's first a matter of the heart. But he says this to jolt them to attention. Like you all, you've all done that before. Kind of overstate something so you make sure someone's listening to you. And signify the importance of what he's saying. 
There's a commentator in doing my study on this passage who said that these three body parts represent our, our physical lives. Hands represent what we do. Our feet represent where we go. And our eyes represent what we see. And none are more important than eternal life. Nothing we do, nowhere we go, and nothing we see is more important than faith in Jesus Christ. This is what it is to see the world through his lens. Everything else is perishable. Everything else is expendable. Nothing surpasses our knowledge and affection for Jesus. So brothers and sisters, let it be said of us, of people in our life, that when they look at us, they know the most important thing about us is our relationship with Jesus. Nothing you do Nowhere you go, nothing you see should surpass, surpass Christ. And if it does, cut it off. Repent of it. This is a hard warning, but it is clear and it is vivid. As Jesus is advocating for this kind of ruthless moral self-denial. Otherwise, we live for sin and, and sin leads to hell. So let's talk about the word hell he uses there. It's a Greek word. It's called Gehenna. It's a translation of a Hebrew word that means the Valley of Hinnom. And this valley that he's saying and referring to is an actual place south of Jerusalem. It was a place in the Old Testament where wicked kings of Israel did child sacrifices to pagan gods in this valley. All kinds of dark, dark things happened here. So when King Josiah came to reign in 2 Kings 23, one, he's one of the really few, really good kings in Israel's history, he made it a point to uh, declare this place unclean. And so from that moment, it became the literal garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem where garbage was brought to be burned and disposed of. And by the time of the first century, it was still the city dump for Jerusalem. And so he uses this as a vivid kind of terrible images for the Jews, that there's this unquenchable fire, because there's always smoldering and burning happening in this garbage dump. And in other places, he would refer to this place as utter darkness. So this is obviously not a, the physical place of hell. I don't think Jesus is speaking of literal darkness or literal fire because those are two completely opposite things, but he's just trying to find language to invoke such unbelievable darkness, such unbelievable pain in this symbolic language to get across how terrible hell is. Because let's be honest, language can't even, language will always fall short. It's probably far worse in reality. And it's a warning. A warning of how sin removes us from the grace and power of God that sustains and supports us. So Jesus is calling for a radical self-denial because the opposite of self-denial is living for yourself. And the danger with living for yourself is that that is exactly what you will receive. In Romans 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul talks about, you know what, he talks about God's wrath. He says, you know what God's wrath is? It's just giving you to your own sinful desires. Giving you over to them. Meaning the worst possible thing that could happen to us is getting what our sinful hearts desire. The desire of independence. The desire of just saying, I choose my own path and I walk that path because I decide that's right for me. And that's horrifying because it does not define what our culture says what happiness is right now. 
I get to decide across the whole spectrum what is right for me. And then walk in that. And Romans 1 and 2 says, God's wrath is just letting you do what your sinful heart desires. Of saying, we don't need God. I can just do it on my own. And in this way, hell is just getting what you asked for. Hell is getting what you chose. J.I. Packer, theologian and uh, coming out of Britain, middle of the 20th century, he writes this, quotes on the screen. Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. The afterlife, eternal life, it's not an unfair punishment. It's giving us over to what we want most. And if we just live for ourselves and we decide to cut God out, we will get an eternity without God, and it will be hell. And hell should not be neglected or, or shied away from, but it also should never just stand alone in our teaching. Jesus never teaches about hell just to do it and then walk away. He uses it to talk about the good news. Listen, hell plays a role in sharing the redemptive message of the gospel. Because hell, a separation from God, is so terrible and it's so awful that no one should desire it. But this is where the gospel explodes in our minds and our hearts and it forces us to explore the depths of God's love for you. On the cross, Jesus was brutally crucified. But it wasn't the physical pain that made Jesus cry out, Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In just complete anguish. It wasn't just the physical pain. It was the spiritual reality that he suffered when God turned his face away from his own son. And Jesus wasn't tricked by this. He chose it. So you wouldn't have to. Jesus experienced the absence of God. He experienced hell when the Father poured his wrath towards sin onto him. My sin and your sin onto him so he experiences the absence of God so you wouldn't have to. Sin is the problem. And Paul tells us in Romans 3 that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God and the cross is where Jesus died is where God's love for sinners and God's wrath for sin come crashing together. And when he died and then three days later was raised by the Father, it was made evident that our price was paid in full. That by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive a new heart. We become co-heirs with Christ in the heavenly places and we are secure in the promise to never be separated by the love of the Father again. Church, the doctrine of hell doesn't detract from the good news. It deepens it. It shows us just how much God loves us and how dependent we are on him for everything. So promises and warnings, both said for a singular point to his disciples, be at peace with one another. Put the pride away. Be at peace with one another. Be salty. And by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, we now are equipped to be self-deniers. We are equipped to live for others because of what Jesus has done for us. 
And this is the lens through which we now see the world, and it's stunning in all of its creative glory, like black and white come into life. And this is the witness we have to be bright lights in a dark world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even and especially the difficult word. I pray you would soften our hearts to receive what you have to say, that this message in scripture this morning would not detract from our knowledge and affection for you, but would deepen it, would deepen the price that you paid on the cross for us, and that we would live as self-deniers, as evidence of the fact that we have placed our faith in you. And it's for the glory of your son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.